Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast. Today we have a bit of a different episode called Conversations at the Coalface. This is a segment where I'm going to be talking to people who are at the coalface within organizations that are buying or selling um, to get perspectives from the ground up, basically. I think it's really interesting sometimes to hear experiences from people who are involved from the business side of the process rather than just the advisor's side. So here we go. Ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. So today we are talking to a company, obviously at the coalface, of using acquisition as a growth strategy. So today we're talking to Dean Tavener, who's the Head of Operations at Lifestyle Financial Services. And he's worked with the CEO of that financial planning business to grow the business from eight staff to 26 staff and to grow assets under management from around $450 million to now around about one point. billion all in the last 18 months. And this has been mostly through their acquisition focus. So it's a good insight into organizations who are busily buying up businesses as part of their growth strategy. And Dean is talking to us today about his role in integrating businesses post-completion. He also has a lot of interesting things to say about the targets and the strategy that's behind it. But I think it's really interesting to hear his point of view from the coalface as the person who is having to deal with the issues that come through integration post-completion. Hi, Dean. Thanks for coming along to speak to us today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Great. Look, this is a really interesting story you have of Lifestyle Financial Services' rapid growth through acquisitions. So I want to, there's so many things that I would like to talk to you about, but, and we'll, we'll try and keep it <laughs> short within that context as well. But how about we maybe start by walking through how you've been personally involved in these acquisitions so far? Sure. Okay. Good question. So as the head of operations, my main involvement with the acquisitions that we've gone through in the last 18 months or so, and there's been uh, there's been about five of them, has been with the basically the implementation, which um, I know can mean a lot of different things for different people, but I'm essentially talking about everything that needs to be done after the dotted line has been signed, so to speak, to mm. actually you know, take on the asset that we've paid for and, and make it work and make sure that we see the return on the investment that we've made. So our acquisitions have been a, a combination of a couple of acquisitions where we've taken on board the whole company, essentially, so the staff, the brand, and so on. Um, and there's obviously a lot in that in terms of integrating their existing systems with our existing systems and trying to find you know, the best, best match or what to drop and what to keep um, in that regard, as well as having the staff of the purchased business slot into our existing teams and, and learn to work the way that we do or for us to learn the work learn the way that they work and then some simpler acquisitions where we've 
simply purchased the book of clients from the seller and left shares and staff um, and other sort of assets like that out of the question, which are a little bit easier to implement. But um, for anyone that's worked in the financial services space, they would know that there's still plenty of compliance loopholes to, uh, sorry, not loopholes, <laughs> compliance hurdles to jump. Yep. To to have things all affected as best we can so that business can just continue operating without an impact on the customers and, of course, without an impact on revenue. Mm. Okay, and and I guess one thing I haven't said so far and we, we should probably say right at the beginning, I guess here we're talking about lifestyle financial services being a financial planning business that is essentially going through the process now of buying financial planning firms as a growth strategy. Is that right? Is that a correct summation? Yeah, correct. So financial planning business, and we've been around for uh, it's about 27 years and just in the last 18 months or so have really focused on growth through acquisition and trying to get a sort of hit, hit a certain scale, especially in one department of our overall business plan. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. that then leads into what was going to be my next question, but which you, you've somewhat answered um, already. It, it was just, you know, what's the strategy behind all of these acquisitions? So why acquisitions rather than organic growth? What was the thinking there? Okay, there's a, there's a big answer to that, um, but I'll try and keep it relatively succinct. <laughs> We've had a degree of organic growth for a long time. But we recently joined uh, a larger group called the AZNGA group, which has sort of come into this market in the last sort of three to four years. And this is part of their overall offering and um, and why we joined up with them is that they provide some capital, essentially, uh, where appropriate for the firms that join their group to be able to acquire. And the reason that that's been especially attractive to us as a as a growth strategy recently to supplement the sort of organic growth that has been going along nicely but not um, not with astronomical growth rates mm. is that there was uh, there's been a couple of significant industry and compliance shifts recently so legislative changes that have rocked the way that some businesses work and uh, essentially people are or some businesses are trying to offload a portion of their client base or even get out of the industry altogether as a result of those changes and the new requirements of the way things have to be done. Mm. And the uh, the CEO here has basically seen that as both a risk and an opportunity. So we had the choice of either taking the same path and getting out of this space where the rules changed, but uh, have gone for the the other option there, which has been to buy up where everyone is selling out and mm. try to get the scale that will make it effective to be able to continue to play in that area. Okay, great. All right. So I can see the strategy here. You know, you, it's all about fast growth uh, uh, to scale quickly in an area where you had to make a decision either to scale it or lose it, basically. Yeah, that's basically it. And we're trying to implement and use technology in the smartest way that we can to help us scale more without having to bring on um, as much cost. So we're trying to really increase our referral base and our client base. And we believe that we can continue offering the same sort of level of service to a much larger base of clients without necessarily having to up the costs at the same rate. Okay. And so you mentioned five acquisitions in the last, did you say in the last year? 
over the last 18 months? Uh, it's been a bit over a year now. A, a bit over a year. And then and then I think when we were discussing before, you said that AZNGA has completed 19 acquisitions itself and 53 secondary acquisitions. So is that right? Are those figures correct? Uh, so I haven't done a very precise double check on those, but I'd say that within one or two, so that is correct. So AZNGA, which um, I can sort of refer to as our parent company in a way. Yep. That's a slightly complicated you know, company structure there. But if we consider them the parent of the group, AZNGA has done 19, that's around 19 direct acquisitions mm-hmm. and about 52, 53 acquisitions overall in wow. the last three years approximately. Let's take a short break. When we get back, Dean continues the conversation by telling us what they look for when seeking to acquire another firm. We'll also have a look at this tricky concept of earnout arrangements and how Lifestyle Financial Services has used earnouts as an effective transition tool. And that's next. This is Joanna Oki, and you've been listening to The Deal Room, a podcast brought to you by Aspect Legal. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition or to discuss how we can work with your clients if you're an advisor in this space. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au or if it's easier, just shoot me an email at joanna at aspectlegal.com.au. interested in hearing smart legal tips for business, the Deal Room's sister podcast, Talking Law, is perfect for you. These two podcasts are now among the top legal podcasts in Australia. In our Talking Law podcast, I dissect a different topic each week that I have seen impact businesses and I then provide actionable tips for you to avoid that risk or to use that legal area to your advantage. We release new episodes every 10 days and you can listen to our episodes through www.talkinglaw.com.au or subscribe to our Talking Law podcast on iTunes to be the first to know when a new episode is out. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Earlier, Dean talked to us about his role in integrating businesses post-completion. He also had a lot of interesting things to say about the strategy that's behind their acquisition focus. Let's jump back to the conversation and find out what they are looking for in a target. And 
And so what are you looking for then in a target? What are you looking for when you're seeking to acquire another firm? Uh, good question. <laughs> That's um, a hard one to answer, I think. So there's a few things that we'd be looking for and a couple of them I'm sure will be um, taken for granted, taken as given rather mm-hmm. by, by most of your listeners. Um, you know, Obviously, it has to be a profitable business. There has to be still potential for growth. So if we see that every uh, basically revenue stream that sits within that kind of business or that kind of client base is being harvested, uh, for want of a better word, then if that's already the case, then it's potentially not as good a purchase as when we can come in and create more upside than there's currently in the business. Mm. When looking at at a more comprehensive acquisition, so where we bring on staff, the offices, the brand name and so on as well, then cultural fit is definitely very, very important. Possibly one of the the top criterion Mm -hmm. uh, that needs to be filled. And what do you mean by that when you talk about cultural fit? What particular cultural fit are you looking for in these targets? So the main two that come to mind are firstly a cultural fit for the staff. If we're going to be bringing on the staff of the company that we're acquiring, it's very important to us and um, as the management and also just to all the people that we work with that any new employees that are going to come on, especially in bulk like that, will be able to get along with the rest of the team and the rest of the business, even if they will be sitting in their current offices and uh, not necessarily sitting in the same space or integrating uh, in the short term with our teams, mm. there's always going to be a degree of having to work together with the people that we've already got. So mm. it's very important that everyone can get along, have fun, be supportive of one another, and that there's not going to be any serious uh, personality friction there. How do you assess that then? How, how do you assess whether, you know, is that a gut feel thing? Is it, is that something where someone from your organisation goes in and has a chat to the staff and, and, and comes up with, you know, a feeling about it? Or, or is there a particularly structured approach that you work through? Unfortunately, it's not particularly structured. <laughs> um, I don't think it would be as easy as, as applying a due diligence method. Yeah. Um, to the numbers uh, on the cultural side. It's always going to be a little bit of a gut feel kind of assessment, I think. Yeah, yeah. We've definitely done it uh, in the past at least once where there's been a sort of interview process with each of the staff, Mm -hmm. which gives gives us a little bit of a feel for who they are and how they work. And I think it also comes back to the feel for the overall culture of the organisation, which is actually what I was going to Mm. add to before anyway. So the overall culture, whether that's coming from the top or from the bottom or both, but the idea of how the company treats its clients and its suppliers, its attitude to doing business um, in terms of what kind of service or support they're trying to offer, the level of quality Essentially, I'm trying to talk in generic terms here, mm, so it's mm. pretty applicable to the majority of people listening. But mm, mm. I think that kind of uh, similar attitude to the way that you do business, I think, is is really helpful to ensuring a smoother transition, a smoother acquisition, and will feed down through to the staff as well. So if the company values are aligned, I think that the onboarding and integrating of any staff that come along with an acquisition is going to be a little bit easier because of that as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, look, and and that makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. And once again, when you're looking at the overall culture, the way you're assessing that is by going in and talking to the senior management and hearing how their attitude to clients and to doing business and their and and those sorts of things, or or are there checklists that you're working through or other sort of structured approaches that you're using? I'd say it's been mostly through the conversational. Route. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, we don't have a, a very structured approach to this, but it comes out in the process, I guess. Yeah, so in yeah. the process of the due diligence and you're working out the details of the deal. Mm. Uh, obviously, the uh, management of both companies have to work pretty closely together uh, throughout that um, ordeal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. The, the values and the way that we all work comes out in that process to an extent anyway. And how um, how many of your businesses that you're acquiring do you have the um, business owners uh, continue to stay on and 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 work in the business moving forward? Like what what component is um, selling to retire versus um, selling to continue? I can't really answer the second part of that question uh, just because it's a bit of a blurred line. Um, but mm. the first part. Definitely, I feel um, I feel very strongly that the acquisitions that have worked best for us is where the owner, or at least a major stakeholder of the business that is selling, has sort of come on board or come across in some way and worked with us or for us, however you'd like to see it, mm. for a while at least to ensure there's a smooth ac- uh, acquisition process and a smooth transition for the clients because. In the end, if we make an acquisition of a business whose revenue is based on interaction with clients and the clients feel mishandled, then <laughs> there's not going to be a lot of revenue left. Exactly. So that's been been really, really crucial. And there was one acquisition that we've made in the last 18 months where that didn't happen to such a full extent. The, the owners of the selling business weren't all that engaged with us. We, we kind of just took on the purchase and thought that we could do the onboarding and the transition phases ourselves to an extent. It all worked out okay in the end, but it was uh, it was definitely a lot more work and a lot more of a shaky experience for everyone involved. Mm. Uh, and so every other acquisition we've done, the owners have worked with us either through an employment contract or some kind of contracting or consulting arrangement, but there's definitely been a lot of cooperative work on the deal. Yep. Uh-huh. I see. Do you now sort of work with a minimum period that you would expect and want the sellers to be to continue to be involved for now? Is is this something now that you you know, you see that there's a minimum requirement of? Yeah. So we've we've more or less settled on twelve months. Right. Seems to be the minimum. I think it's a very case by case basis and you know these things can be very large and complex. So I'm sure there's arguments for it being more or less in certain circumstances, but we've found that um, firstly structuring the deal in a way that uh, has an upside payment or a second payment mm-hmm. determined by the progress of, of the profitability mm-hmm. over the first 12 months and both parties having you know, a vested interest in maintaining certain profitability over that time, having that payment set for 12 months later then creates a, a really good set a goalpost for all parties to work towards together for 12 months. And that's a very decent amount of time to 
to enable a smooth transition and to iron out any bugs in the process and and just jump through the uh, compliance hoops that need to be jumped through along yeah. the way as well. Yeah. And look, it's really interesting that you're talking about this because this concept of, you, you know, paying vendors later on, so earnouts effectively, where, where you're paying them uh, on the basis of performance or, or, or whatever um, at a point post-transaction is, you know, can be a, a point of contention often. You know, and particularly I often find when accountants are advising their client um, and sometimes lawyers, you know, they can be a little bit wary of the concept of earnouts because, you know, unfortunately us as advisors in this space can sometimes see issues that are caused by by uh, earnouts if, you know, if vendors are relying on them and then something happens outside of their control into the future and then they can't, you know, there's issues calling on, on the payment of the earnout. But it sounds like in your instance, earnouts are really helping to make this transition work effectively for both parties, I guess. Yeah, I think they've been a good feature to the overall process on the whole. Uh, that's not to say that we've used them the same way every time, had the same terms or the same length of period over which it's all assessed. Uh, I think, as I said, every case needs to be assessed on its own merits. There's so many moving parts, but on the whole, I think it's a good feature to encourage cooperation and and working together to make sure the deal is a win-win, which is really what everyone's after in the end. So Mm. it helps align that goal. Excellent. Okay, wonderful. Well, it's good to hear. I, I really like to hear, you, you know, positive feedback in relation to some of these more contentious issues, like, for example, the concept of earnouts and how they actually are working in practice for everyone. So it's great to hear that in your situation, they're working well, albeit indeed you're the buyer, so usually they're the... <laughs> party sometimes that may have the most to benefit from them, except for the fact that obviously these um, these parties that you're buying from are getting an upside themselves in getting these payments from, from the earnout payments. And obviously you're in the place now where you've seen some of these earnout payments actually being made to those sellers. Is that right? You've seen some of these transactions now where some of this earnout cash has, has changed hands? Correct. Yes. And I'm sure that leads to happiness on the side of the vendor as well, right? <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, uh, yeah, we believe so from the extent that we communicate with them. So it seems like a win-win in, in most situations, just not all. But if done well, I think it can be really beneficial. That's a wrap for part one of this two-part series with Dean Tavener of Lifestyle Financial Services. In part two, Dean gets down into the weeds about the other things that they look for in a target acquisition. It's also interesting to hear his point of view from the coalface as the person who deals with the issues that come through integration post-completion. If you'd like more information about this topic, head over to our website where you can find a transcript of this podcast episode and also details on how to contact Dean Tavenard directly. So head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com. That's thedealroompodcast.com. And there you'll also find details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like to discuss any legal aspects of sales or acquisitions. We've got a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition 
or help them through the transaction process. We work with clients both big and small, so don't hesitate to book an appointment if you'd like to find out how we may be able to assist. And finally, if you enjoy what you heard today, please pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review. We'd be so grateful. And if you have any topics that you'd like us to cover on this podcast or anyone you'd like us to speak to in particular, please just shoot me an email at joanna.oki at aspectlegal.com.au. Thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and the Deal Room podcast sponsored by Aspect Legal. See you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. 